0: presenting focus on truth the bible teaching ministry of chuck bradshaw focus on truth is a non-denominational evangelical christian ministry to the marketplace focus on truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of god and helping people understand the practical relevance of the bible join now with chuck as together we focus on the truth of god's word Today is our last session in this series that I've entitled, It is Finished, The Sure Foundation of Christianity. The subtitle today is Die." We'll talk about what that means in a minute. To telesty salvation available or salvation assured and uh, last in our last couple of sessions together uh, we've talked about what I think is probably the most important issue, and that is the issue of justification by faith uh, in our next to the last uh, session, uh, we talked about that exclusively. And then in our last session together, we talked about, I think the title was, Nothing in My Hand I Bring. And the idea was that there is no part that we play whatsoever in our salvation Uh, that is anything that we generate. Now, clearly, we must believe the gospel. We must repent. But, as we saw, even repentance and faith are gifts that God gives us. He grants that to us whenever He breathes the breath of life into us that is when he regenerates our dead spirits for apart from uh, a relationship with God in Christ we are said to be the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins so there's nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling as Augustus Toplady said Today we're talking about probably the most controversial, one of the most controversial things uh, in our in our series, and it has to do with the subject of limited atonement, or sometimes it's known as particular redemption. And when we talk about limited atonement, we're not talking about uh, uh, the uh, the efficacy of Christ's. Um, Death on the cross being limited in any way. We're talking about the scope of it. For whom did Christ die? Uh, some people and basically there are four views on this and that is in fact if you look at your notes I have put that uh, put that in there down in uh, uh, in the introductory part part c uh, the next to the last part there Uh, for what and for whom did Jesus die did he die for all of the sins of all people everywhere or did Jesus die for all of the sins of some people, and those some people would be his elect. Did Jesus die for some of the sins of all people, or did Jesus die for some of the sins of some people? Well, I think just plain old reason would tell us that we would immediately dismiss the last two because if Jesus died for some of the sins of some people or for some of the sins of all people that means that there are still some sins remaining and of course we're not going to be able to get into heaven we're not going to have a, a, a relationship with God through Christ if sin remains upon us if, if all of our sin has not been atoned for then clearly we cannot have a relationship with God. So we dismiss the last the last two just on the basis of sweet reason. So that, that brings us back <clears throat> excuse me, that brings us back to the first two. Did Jesus die for all of the sins of all people? Well if he did that's that's what's known as universalism. Well some people would argue with that and say well no 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 what you what you have to understand is is that yes uh, Jesus died for all the sins of all people and uh, but Jesus has to be received by faith and of course we would all agree with that Jesus does have to be received by faith in order to be saved. And if a person refuses to receive Jesus, then they're going to face the judgment of God and will face condemnation and hell someday. But so what is it that you would call refusing to receive Jesus? If you ref- what's a what's another na- a single word that you would use to uh, to refer to uh, not receiving Jesus and unwillingness to receive Jesus? Well, I think we could agree that that word would be unbelief. Well, what is unbelief? Unbelief is sin. So. Essentially, if you say that Jesus died for all of the sins of all people except for the sin of unbelief, that is, you've got to believe, but He died for all sins, then Jesus only died for some of the sins of all people because He didn't die for their unbelief. You see, it's, it can be sort of tricky right here. Now I know some of you, you. I can I can see that the hair on your back is beginning to stand up. We're gonna we're gonna work our way through this, and le- and let me say this. There are men and women of good conscience and in good standing with God who are on both sides of these of this issue. Some people believe that uh, in, in limited atonement or particular redemption and others do not. Let me say this, and I want to be real clear, and that is you do not have to believe uh, in limited atonement or particular redemption in order to be saved but it is an important issue because Jesus cried out from the cross to tell us it is finished now was it finished or was it not is there something uh, in other words did Jesus just simply make salvation possible Okay, now I've died for I've died for sins now it's all up to you to believe in me well if you don't believe in me that's unbelief what is unbelief unbelief is a sin well I thought you just said Jesus died for all sins that would include unbelief and see that's that's the position that that others of us hold that when he died he did die for all sin including my unbelief and in all in the course of time what Jesus does, what God does is that He regenerates us and in regenerating us, He gives us faith. He gives us the ability to repent and we express that uh, faith and that repentance toward God and He saves us. Now let's uh, again, don't, don't settle down now. It's going to be alright. We're just going to work our way through this. When we get through, you and I are still probably going to have some of us are going to have some disagreements about this. But I think it's important for us to understand that while we can uh, have some theological uh, disagreements, we don't have to be disagreeable uh, about those uh, differences that we hold. Now, there are some things that we must hold if we're going to be believers, and that is we must believe that Jesus is very God who has come in the flesh. We must believe that Jesus has died for our sins. If you believe that and you confess him before men, the Bible says that you are saved. <clears throat> Isn't that wonderful? It's as simple as that. But let's just uh, let's just look at this this whole issue. When Jesus said to tell us die, he used a word that was a a very common word in banking in that day and it meant that a debt was paid in full if the word was used in the in the uh, in the realm of the arts it meant that a masterpiece was complete you wouldn't think about um uh, uh, going uh, somewhere and to uh, to a, to a uh, where where an artist has done a piece of work. In fact, uh, just recently I was uh, visiting in someone's home and they had an original Norman Rockwell there. I, it never occurred to me. He so, said, "You know, I think I need to get my pencil and just add a few little things to this line drawing right here." No, it it's a masterpiece and it is complete. To tell us uh, die in religion. It meant uh, for a priest. It meant that the sacrifices was perfect, and for the believer in Christ, to telestai means full atonement has been made. It certainly uh, was necessary for the personal application of Christ's sacrifice uh, to be made to us as individuals. Uh, Notice John chapter 1 verses 11 and following. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he who believed in His name, that's what it means to receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right or the authority to become children of God who were born not of blood, that is, not by family or ethnicity, nor of the will of the flesh, that is, thy works, you can't work for it, nor of the will of man, you can't have it by proxy, but rather of God, and only of God. Regeneration must be Precede admission into God's family. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation when did God choose you for salvation if you are a saved person today when did God choose you for salvation well he chose you from the beginning what is the beginning well if you look in the book of Revelation and I think it's uh, chapter 8 verse I believe verse 13 it it talks about the uh, the man of sin the antichrist and the people who will worship Him. And it says, those who will worship Him are those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. So when uh, when Paul writes here, you were chosen from the beginning for salvation, he's talking about from the very beginning when God spoke creation into uh, into being. He had already determined that he was going to save a certain a certain number of people uh, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue the the book of Revelation tells us uh, every ethnicity and he goes on to say God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation now he tells us how through sanctification by the Spirit that is the Spirit of God has to set us apart to Himself that's when regeneration takes place and Faith in the truth. So you see, there's a. Remember, one of the things we talked about in the uh, uh, in the, uh, the calling, the the term calling. You remember that uh, that unbreakable chain and one of uh, of salvation that we saw in Romans chapter eight. And one of the links in that chain was calling those whom God has uh, uh, predestined. He's also called, and whom He called, He also justified. Whom He justified, He also Also glorified. In other words, it it started all over here at the at the front with the foreknowledge of God, and it ends up with the believer being glorified. That is in God's presence with a new body and and this joined together with His new spirit. And God has guaranteed that that is going to happen. But how does that happen? It happens through this matter of calling. But remember, there are two kinds of calling. There's the general call, which is the call of the gospel. That's, that's, the, that's the great commission. You and I are to go into all the world. That means we're going to our neighborhood. We're to talk to our family. And we're to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to whom? To everyone. But apart from the work of the Spirit of God, what is going to be the response to the proclamation of the Gospel? It's going to be zero. Because that's where the effectual call comes in, because it's God Himself who breathes into us the breath of life. And when He does... We see ourselves for the sinners that we are and the need that we have for a Savior. We recognize that Jesus is the only Savior that there is and that He has accomplished salvation and and god grants us faith and repentance and we express that toward god uh and what does he do he saves us he, you know uh, i used to attend a church many many years ago where one of their favorite choruses was there's a new name written down in glory they would they would sing that because uh you know people would be apparently saved during the during the course of a uh uh during the course of some uh, Preaching service and they would sing there's a new name written down in glory no 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 those names of the people who are going to be saved were written down in the lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world the bible says so it's the work of the spirit of god let's go back again second thessalonians chapter 2 God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You can't be saved apart from uh, trusting in the gospel. But how is it that you trust in the gospel? It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit as He sets you apart for Himself, as He regenerates you, as He reveals to you who Christ really is. Because remember, the the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 that the natural man that is the unsaved person does not understand the things of the spirit of God they are foolishness to him he cannot understand them. Notice it's not just a matter of unwillingness. It's a matter of inability. He says he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why can't he spiritually discern those things? Because he is dead in trespasses and sins. If you go to your local mortuary and walk in there to an open casket and look at that body inside that casket and get down real close to the face of that individual, that body that's in that casket and say, brother, if you just believe you could get out of there, do you think that person's going to get up? No, because their primary need is not faith. Their primary need is not to be able to believe. Their primary need is life because they are dead. And we are in the same way dead in trespasses and sins. That means we are unresponsive toward God. You said, but don't, aren't we able to choose? The, well, you can choose what tie you wore. You can you choose the dress that you wore today. There are a lot of things that you can choose. You can choose to live in one part of town or another. You can choose to buy one type of truck or another type of car. There are a lot of things that you can choose, but when it comes to the realm of the Spirit, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that those who are after the flesh are hostile toward God. Now, if you're hostile toward someone and you don't understand someone and you think that person is foolish, what are the chances that you're going to latch onto that person and become that person's friend? You're not. And if you're dead in sin, if you're dead, that complicates it even more so. Uh, notice also, and I put this in your notes, there's a... Uh, from uh, chapter 11, paragraph 4 in the old Westminster Confession of Faith. And I encourage you to look at some of these old uh, historic church documents. Notice, and I I quote here, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So again, there it is. It's not that, you see, some people say, well, I believe God uh, doesn't doesn't, uh, uh, make people do things that they don't want to do. That, I, that that God would never violate someone's will. Well, listen, I'd agree with you. God doesn't violate will. You know what God does? He changes your will. Because before you come to Christ, the only thing you're willing to do is go your own way. And through the process, or through the uh, through the the change that occurs in regeneration, what God does is He implants a new nature within us—a nature that loves Him, a nature that is incapable of sin. Now, it's still doing battle with a lot of things that are kind of left over in me, but there's this new nature that loves God and wants to obey God. And so, what He does is He gives us. Uh, He changes our will so that He he causes us to be willing. He doesn't save us against our will. I want Him to save me. But before He opens my eyes to the truth, before He regenerates me, before He shows me who Christ is, before He shows me what my genuine need is and how low I really am and what trouble I'm in spiritually, Until he does that, I don't want anything to do with God. Now, I might want to have something to do with religion. I might want to hang out at church because it's a great place to do business. It might be a great place to meet women. It might be a great place to do any kind of number of things. It might be a great place just so that it will keep mama happy because I'm going to church. It might be a good way just to uh, to have friends. It might be a great way to uh, to bring up my kids because the church has all kinds of wonderful activities for the kids. <clears throat> I might even be giving money to the church. I might even uh, memorize the the Lord's Prayer and uh, and and be able to say the Apostles' Creed. But unless God changes my heart. It all means nothing. Remember that old uh, parable that Jesus told about the sower who went out and sowed the the seed and just sowed it indiscriminately. Some of it fell on the sidewalk. A lot of it fell in the field. Some of it that was in the field fell real near the sidewalk. And uh, <clears throat> what happened to that? Well, the stuff is on the sidewalk. It never came to nothing. It came to nothing. In fact, the birds came and, and picked it up and ate all that. And then the other seed germinated, but the seed that was in the uh, in the stony places... Uh, it just didn't. There wasn't enough soil for it to, to really grow. It never produced fruit. And the the seed that fell among the thorns, it was choked out by weeds. Only that that was in the productive land ever bore fruit. Some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. But the issue is not how much. The issue is, is there fruit in my life? Am I producing uh, some sort of fruit that makes me look like a Christian? Or is the Holy Spirit at work in my life producing the fruit of the Spirit? See, there's a difference between the the fruit of the so-called Christian and the fruit of the Spirit. You know... I can pray oh God, help me to to uh to learn to be a self-controlled person that's a that's a, a, a mark of the holy spirit that's something that, that god does in our lives now i can i can generate some of that stuff myself you know i can say but i'm, I'm just not going to get mad i'm not going to let this get under my skin i'm just i'm not going to blow up at this person and, and all those are good things but a lot of times that's what i'm doing and i'm not depending on the lord jesus saying Lord uh, help me to love this person because if I love this person I'm not going to blow up at this person Lord if if I understand that you are in control of all things when things begin to go wrong I'm not going to explode and go to pieces that's the fruit of the spirit Uh, and there's a real difference between artificial fruit and real fruit well I didn't mean to get into all that but notice there's a in what we've read so far, there's a real unity of purpose within the Godhead. That is salvation is planned by the Father, is purchased by the Son, and it is applied by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter three verse six says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, that's regeneration, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, how do you reconcile Jesus' words? It's finished with the requirements to be set apart by the Holy Spirit and to receive Christ by believing in Him. Did Jesus' substitutionary death simply make it possible for someone to be saved? Or did it actually ensure the salvation of someone? If limited atonement, or also known as particular redemption, is true, who... Does the limiting? Is it God who does the limiting by His electing grace, or is it human beings doing the limited limiting by their unbelief? what I'd like to do is just take uh <clears throat> just take most of our time and just look at verses from the Bible uh that speak to this very issue and let's let's just let God speak to us <clears throat> some of you don't look like you're squirming quite as much now so that's a that's a good thing Ephesians chapter 1 Beginning at verse 3. Incidentally, in the Greek, this is uh, down through about verse 14. This is all one long sentence. I'm glad that the uh, translators kind of divided it up for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. If you are a believer, the reason you are a believer is because you were chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Now, now, how many works had you done? Well, of course, you hadn't done any. But see, what some people say? Well, what God does is He looks down the tunnel of time and He sees what kind of response that you're going to make to the gospel. Well, if that's true, then the onus is on us, rather than uh, than than being on God. That that is that uh, we're the one who's doing the limiting, and God Himself is just saying, "Well, look." I sent my Son to the cross, I've done all I can do, and now it's up to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says, uh, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. To what end? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In, In other words, we're supposed to live upright, godly lives. It's not that He saves us and that, well, now you can live as you please. You know, once saved, always saved. You get your ticket punched and then you just live any way you please. Let me tell you what, you live any way you please, you'll go to hell. It's as simple as that. Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think it's chapter eight, but I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I reviewed the verse. But the verse, but the, but Solomon wrote this. Rejoice, young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you all the days of your youth. And walk in the ways, uh, walk in the sight of your eyes, and in the ways of your heart. But know this: that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. God intends for us to be like His Son. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And what is the purpose of His will? To the praise of His glorious grace. Listen, the reason, the, the main reason God saved us is for the glory of His grace. I mean, the, think about it. The whole world, because our primeval parents sinned, we are born with a sin nature and we're all under condemnation. And if God God just did this with His hands and said they can all go to hell as far as I'm concerned, Uh, God would be perfectly justified in doing that. But what has God done? Even before He put the man in the garden, before the foundation of the world, He had set apart a certain people for Himself. And in doing so, they will be for the praise of His glory. (laughs) How can that be? How can, how can they bring glory to God? Because they were in this cesspool of sin, going their own way, going our own way. And God in His mercy came in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and died for our sins and sent His Spirit to regenerate us, and to bring us to Himself, to indwell us, to guide us into truth, and to lead us into righteousness. Praise be to God. That you know that would preach I guess it says in him we have redemption through his blood that is he has bought us back redemption means to buy back he's bought us back because we were sold that we were slaves to sin we're no longer slaves to sin we're bond servants of Christ as well as his children in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished Upon us, verse eleven in him we believers have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me tell you what when God decides what he 's going to do. You and I aren't going to thwart what he does. Remember the story of Jonah when uh, when God told Jonah, said, Now remember, Jonah had been not only a prophet, but he was also a patriot, we discover. And uh, God had told Jonah. Jonah had had a successful ministry. He had prophesied that uh, during the reign of Jeroboam the second that the boundaries of uh, of Israel were going to expand, and and that had happened. And so Jonah, you know, is man. He's on top of the world because first of all, he's been chosen as a prophet. Uh, you know, called as a prophet. That's that's something. Uh, he had been seemingly very successful in what he was doing because what he had said had come to pass Uh, apparently you know that would make him in high esteem as far as the king was concerned but then God comes to him one day and says okay here's your next assignment I want you to go to Nineveh now Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time it had declined a little bit and uh, but they were mortal enemies of Israel I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has come up. And, and uh, Jonah just decided, no, I'm going to the Iberian Peninsula. He took off for Tarshish, somewhere around Portugal, Spain, somewhere they, they, they considered the end of the world. And God could have, uh, and remember, God arranged that undersea adventure for him. And God could have just killed him right there at the bottom of the ocean. And in fact, there, you know, some people believe that that Jonah actually did die because Jesus uses Jonah as an as an illustration of his own death and resurrection. But for our discussion today, that's neither that's neither here nor there. God could have just left him at the bottom of the ocean, dead for fish food. But God had determined that He was going to send Jonah to Nineveh. And Jonah was going to preach in Nineveh. And so through an interesting chain of events, uh, Jonah has a change of mind. Now, he has a change of mind as far as going to Nineveh, but he didn't have a change of mind as far as his attitude toward the Ninevites were concerned. Remember when he got over there, he preached to them. And uh uh <coughs> And he, what, what, he, what God told him to preach, and he preached, he said, In 40 days, God's going to nuke you. Uh, now that's, you know, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. He didn't say anything about you need to repent, you need to believe God, you need to embrace the God of the Hebrews. He didn't say any of that. All he said was God's going to nuke you in 40 days. But God was at work among the Ninevites. And from the king on down, they repented. And in fact, they were so serious about their repentance, they were even putting sackcloth on animals. And if you don't think they actually repented, you need to read the New Testament. Because Jesus talks about that. When when the uh, scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, it said, uh, you know... You need to show us a sign to prove who you are. He said, there's not going to be any sign given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so also will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in that day. That is the day of judgment. The men of Nineveh will rise up in that day and they will condemn this generation because you did not believe and a greater than Jonah is here. But see, God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. And that's, that's what Paul is writing about here. Uh, he, he goes on to say in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of His glory. Why is God doing what He's doing? For His own glory. Um, uh, Westminster Catechism, shorter Catechism, verse 1, what is man's chief end? Uh, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him for forever. Verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth. See again, it's you've got to hear the gospel. You've got to believe the truth, but you can't believe the truth unless God first works in your life. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, remember, faith is a gift. Ephesians two verses eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God. you were believed in it and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised holy spirit, sealed, sealed for all eternity, and that holy the Holy Spirit, verse fourteen says, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us is God's guarantee that there's more to come. This, uh, this word that's, uh, that's used, of guarantee, uh, in, the, uh, in the Greek language can also, in fact, was at times translated by things like engagement ring. It uh, earnest. You pay earnest money when you're going to buy a, buy a house. You give them this. It means you mean business. And what does earnest money mean? It means there's a whole lot more that's coming down the line. Uh, an engagement ring. Uh, same same word. You uh <coughs> You give a, a woman an engagement ring, what does that mean? That's a promise that there's more coming. That all that I am and all that I have, sweetheart, is is going to be yours. That they may, they may not look real promising right now, but maybe with a woman like you behind me, uh, maybe I'll be able to accomplish something one of these days. But notice this. All of it. All of it is to the praise of His glory. God has in mind glorifying Himself because He is God Almighty. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You ought to be able to quote this one. And we know that for those who love God, now that wouldn't be unbelievers, that would be believers, All things work together for good for those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, that's eternity, He also predestined, that's eternity, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Now that happens in time and space. And those whom He called... He also justified. That happens in time and space when we believe the gospel and we cry out, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in You. And God bangs down the gavel and says, I declare You righteous. I clothe You with the righteousness of My Son. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And there we are, back in eternity again. But you see, for God, He sees the end from the beginning. And God's got a plan. And He's got a people. And He's going to bring all of His people to Himself. And Christ Jesus is central to that because what did He do? He died for the sins of His people. He even died for their unbelief. Because what does God do? God grants us faith and repentance and we're able to believe, we're able to repent, we're able to cry out, oh God have mercy on me, I no longer want to be your enemy, I'm no longer hostile to you, I no, I no longer think that all of this stuff is a bunch of foolishness, but this is very serious. He goes on to say in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? That is, this unbreakable chain. If God is for us, who's against us? Who's against us? If you look at Romans 9. Uh, some people say that Romans 9 through 11 is is a parenthesis, but it's really not because when when God when when Paul finished Romans chapter 8, you know, he talked about what can separate us from the love of God. And he he names all of these things. He said, "I'm convinced that none of these things can separate us from the love of God." But see then the question arises in some people's minds, "Well, what about Israel? Weren't they God's chosen?" Weren't they the chosen of God? Didn't look like it worked out very well for them. And that's what Paul addresses in Romans 9 through 11. Verse 14 of Romans 9 says, "...What shall we uh, say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." And what uh, Paul is talking about here is God's electing grace. Remember that, uh, that Abraham had, had two sons. His first son was Ishmael. Ishmael was rejected. It was Isaac who's the son of promise. Isaac had two children Esau and Jacob. And Esau, the firstborn, was rejected. And Jacob was the one. And what does Jacob mean? It means supplanter, one who reaches out with a hand to trip somebody. I mean, if you're going to pick somebody, you don't want to pick that all-American guy who could hunt and provide food, old Esau. In fact, Jacob was sort of a mama's boy. And yet it was it was Jacob that God put His electing grace upon. And that's the reason He says here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, here, here, here's, the, here's the application of that. So then, it depends not on human will. Remember, we read that back in John chapter 1. As many as received him, he gave the authority to become children of God, who were born not of the the of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. He says, "It depends not on human will or exertion. No matter, you know, I'm gonna work real hard for for, for my salvation. No, it depends not on human will or exertion. What does it depend on then? But on God. Why?" Because God is the one who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... Notice, now this is Pharaoh. He was not a saved person. But what does God say about Pharaoh? For this very purpose... Now this is a a quotation from Exodus chapter 9. For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth... So then, see, that's, that's so then again. So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills. That was Moses. And He hardens whomever He wills. Remember when 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 God told Moses, met, met Him there at the burning bush, told Him take off your shoes, told Moses, yeah, you're 80 years old, but... Uh, well, I don't think he mentioned his age, but he said, I'm, I'm going to send you back. You need to go back to, uh, to the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt. I'm going to use you as to be their deliverer. And Moses started offering all kinds of excuses why God needed to get him somebody else. But God says, no, I'm going to use you. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will harden whom I will harden. And he said, incidentally, when you go back to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, know this, that I am going to harden his heart and he is not going to let them go. Not willingly. And God does that over and over. And over a period of months, he turns Egypt into an ecological and agricultural disaster area. Puts all of the deities of of Egypt, puts their faces in the dirt as he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And in doing so, he glorifies himself because there is no God in Egypt including Ra and including Pharaoh himself who is supposed to be the son of Ra, the sun god, there is no God in Egypt who can come up and match the God of the Hebrews, the true God of the universe. So He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. And, so, and Paul says, okay, well, if that's true then, you'll say to me, then, well, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? <clears throat> and Paul gives the classic answer. Who are you to answer back to God. Will what's molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? And don't you forget this now. We're all from the same lump. Moses and Pharaoh, Ahab, the wicked king, Judas, Herod, all of us are out of the same lump. We are all sinners. But he says, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, so why did god why did God hold off for example, in the days of Noah, one hundred and twenty years, why did God wait? Why did God wait in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared, notice, please, beforehand. For what purpose? For glory, even us whom He has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He goes on to say in verse 30 and following, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him... Notice this stone. This rock is actually a him, a person, a man, the God-man. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So again, you see, so the question arises at the end of Romans chapter 8, well, yeah, but weren't the, weren't the children of Israel? Weren't they God's chosen people? And boy, look, look at them now. That, God kind of missed out on that one, didn't He? He says, no. Not at all. Because God has a remnant of people that He is going to save, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Notice, uh, let's look at a few other passages, uh, <clears throat> if, if, uh, if you will. Uh, from the second page of your notes, from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. And this is clearly a Messianic passage. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that is the the suffering servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Notice, he didn't make all to be accounted righteous. He will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities not everybody's iniquities he shall bear their iniquities therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors remember jesus died uh, in the middle of a couple of thieves there yet he bore the sin of many who are the many The ones whose names were written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, incidentally, some people, I've had, I've had well-meaning people and, and we're you know still friends who say well Bradshaw I'm, you know I just I don't see how you can go out and just uh, uh, proclaim the gospel just to everybody everywhere aren't you afraid somebody uh, will get saved it's not supposed to be saved and then they kind of laugh and I said no that's, uh, <clears throat> that's really not a possibility because God's going to save whom he wants to save but he's going to use the means of the gospel that's the reason that you and i we we don't know who the elect are, good grief you know I, I, I many of you I know and i I truly think are believers, but I don't know it for sure. The only one I know about for sure is myself because I know what God has done in my own life, and so You and I are called upon to take the gospel everywhere. See, we're responsible to be ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador speaks for the King. We're to go out and we're to speak for the King. We're to proclaim the good news about Jesus. You can go out here on the street and you can tell anybody, anywhere, if you will trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, If you believe that He is God in human flesh and that He died for your sins and you'll trust Him, He will save you. And let me tell you what, that's the truth. You see, the problem is not in the Gospel. The problem is in the hardness of the human heart. Unless the Spirit of God plows that up, makes that soil so so that that seed will germinate, like in the parable of the of the soils the parable of the sower there's not going to be any fruit that's the that's the that's the many for uh, uh whose iniquities he bore matthew one twenty one she this this is remember this is what uh what gabriel uh, told, uh, let's see. Told uh, uh, Joseph, said she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he, this child who's to be born, he will save his people from their sins, and that his people is not Israel; it's all of God's people. It's those among Jews and those among Gentiles. John 6, verse 37 and following, Jesus said, "...all that the Father gives Me will come to Me." If the Father gives them to Him, they'll come to Him. But if the Father doesn't give him, give them to Him, they won't come to Him. And notice He goes on to say, Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Now that's, that's usually the only part of that verse that we hear. And But that part is true. If you come to Christ, He will never cast you out. But the only way you'll come is if the Father has given you to the Son. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will. Oh, you want to know what the will of the Father was? And this is the will of Him, the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day then jesus goes on to say in verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him see that's that effectual call how does the father call us by means of his spirit we we supply the general call we go out and we we tell everybody everywhere come to jesus come to jesus believe the gospel trust in the lord But it falls many times on deaf ears unless the Spirit of God is at work. And Jesus goes on to say, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Notice the passage from John chapter 10. Again, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious hierarchy of His day. And He said this, He said, "...but you do not believe because you are not of My sheep." Now, whoa, 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 Don't, don't, don't misread that. It does not say, "...you are not My sheep because you don't believe." Notice the cause and effect. You do not believe. Why? Because you are not My sheep. If you were one of My sheep, you would believe. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Be careful about the cause and effect here. The reason we believe... If if you're a true believer in Christ, if if you know, say, I've never seen that that book in heaven that's got my name in it up there, but I know it's there. I know it's there. I, I I believe the gospel. I'm trusting in Christ. I have the witness of the Spirit within me. I know that it's so. But just remember this: the reason that it's there is not because you believe. The reason that you believe is because your name is there. You're one of the sheep. Remember, remember the the, the great judgment that Jesus described. I think is in Matthew chapter 25, where where uh, at the at the final judgment, the, the Lord's going to divide folks up, and one you know those at His right hand, those at the left, those at the right are called sheep. Those at the left are called the the goats, and uh, and the goats go into eternal perdition. But the sheep go into eternal bliss. Well, what happens when God saves somebody? Does, does He take a goat and turn them into a sheep? No, He does not. God knows who the sheep are from the foundation of the world. But God's got two kinds of sheep. He's got lost sheep and He's got found sheep. And if you are a lost sheep... I can assure you that God will find you and he will bring you in safely. You will you will never get away. Does that mean we need to assume that we're just don't worry about it. We're going to be okay. No. Think about those two guys hanging next to Jesus. Both of them just cussing Jesus out to start with. And then all of a sudden, for reasons that the Bible doesn't even describe at that point, one of them begins to talk to the other thief and say, hey, quit giving him a hard time. You know, we, we deserve to be here. But this guy hadn't done anything to deserve all of this. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now what happened? He said, here, here are two guys about to slip off into hell. One of them apparently was a goat, but the other one was a sheep. And It looked like, oh, this sheep's about to go over the cliff. No, God got that sheep at the very last minute. But we don't know who the sheep are. That's the reason we proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere. Notice Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, where uh, this is a passage in which uh, Peter is praying, and he says, for truly, he's, he's, he's praying to God, and he says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles that's the Romans and the peoples of Israel whoa watch out now to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur there's the sovereignty of God this was all in the plan of God Notice Acts chapter thirteen. This is when 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 Paul is preaching, and uh, and he <clears throat> the Jews are giving him such a hard time that you know he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but he had such a heart for the Jews that he he invariably go to synagogues and places like that, and then finally when they chase him off, then he turned to the Gentiles, and this is one of those instances in which. <clears throat> He's turned to the Gentiles, and it says when the Gentiles heard this, and this is that the gospel was for them as well, it says they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Watch out now, here it comes. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now watch that cause and effect again. It doesn't say as, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, when were they appointed to eternal life? When God in His foreknowledge and predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. When He wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Those, those, what did they do? Because they were appointed, what did they do? That's right, they believed. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. Notice, she worshiping God, but doing it in ignorance, apparently. She was listening. She was listening to what Paul was preaching. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Notice, she couldn't be saved until God opened her heart to do so. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Notice causality there. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see salvation must begin with God because apart from Christ, all human beings are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins we're unwilling to respond to god we 're unable to respond to God. no one you remember Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him and god's salvation begins with with His purposes from all eternity. His purposes are seen in His electing grace as it's demonstrated in His foreknowledge, that is, His love for His chosen ones, not based on any merit in them. It's demonstrated in His predestination, that is, His determination to conform them, us, to the likeness of Christ. But God's purposes also necessitated the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for His people. His death was payment in full for all of the sins of all of His people. And His elect at the time they express faith in Christ in His finished work will be credited with God's own righteousness and adopted into the family of God. And God's purposes are further guaranteed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And you and I, if we know Christ, if we are the saved, we can be confident about our salvation, first of all, because of the faithfulness of God. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 1 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, when God starts it up. Boy, he's gonna, he's gonna he's gonna take you right on. And the second reason we can be confident about our salvation is because of a life that's being transformed, transformed into a reflection of the character of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about we with uh, unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the only appropriate response for true believers, the only appropriate response is praise and thanksgiving to God for His grace and mercy and to live a life of devoted obedience. Not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of devotion, out of a sense of delight because of what He has done for us. There's an old hymn by Augustus Toplady, uh, we we're all familiar with Rock of Ages, but most of us uh, are not familiar with this one. And uh, I, I think this is I think this is good. It says, "From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous Judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on Thee?" complete atonement Thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing pay whate'er Thy people owed, nor can His wrath on me take place if sheltered in Thy righteousness and sprinkled with Thy blood. If Thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are God and there is no other. You are the God of creation. You are the King of creation. You are the Sovereign of the universe. And when we contemplate who You are, together with the psalmist, we ask, what is man that You are mindful of him? Thank You for Your love and grace and mercy and goodness and for Your justice that punished our sins in the person of Your beloved Son. Thank You that our Lord Jesus Christ paid the full payment for all of our sins. Thank You that indeed it is finished. Father in Heaven, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know You better. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which You've called us. I pray that out of Your glorious riches You will strengthen us with power throughout our inner being and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray also that we, being rooted and established in Your love may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know intimately this love that surpasses knowledge. And now, Father, I pray that You, the God of true peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great Shepherd of the sheep, Equip us with everything good for doing Your will. Work in us and through us what is pleasing to You. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.